Hello and welcome to History Plus True Crime Uncovered, a podcast series that will explore all things history, including historical stories, people, and even places of interest. If you're into these topics, then I think you've found the right place. To start out, I have to give a disclaimer as many episodes are either graphic in nature or inappropriate for certain age groups. Some content in this episode may be sensitive to some listeners. Discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. I am your host, Jamie Peters. Let's dive in. In a previous episode, I talked about the love affair of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, but today let's discuss the problem he had in begetting a male heir. The life of England's Henry VIII is a royal paradox. A lusty womanizer who married six times and canoodled with countless ladies-in-waiting in an era before reliable birth control, he only fathered four children who survived infancy. Handsome, vigorous, and relatively benevolent in the early years of his reign, he ballooned into an ailing 300-pound tyrant whose capriciousness and paranoia set many heads rolling, including those of two of his wives, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. A new study chalks these mystifying contradictions up to two related biological factors, writing in the historical journal by archaeologist Katrina Banks Whitley and anthropologist Kyra Kramer argue that Henry's blood group may have doomed the Tudor monarch to a lifetime of desperately seeking in the arms of one woman after another a male heir, a pursuit that famously led him to break with the Roman Catholic Church in the 1530s, a disorder that affects members of his suspected blood group meanwhile may explain his midlife physical and psychological deterioration. The researchers suggest that Henry's blood carried the rare Kell antigen, a protein that triggers immune responses, while that of his sexual partners did not, making them poor reproductive matches. In a first pregnancy, a Kell positive man and a Kell negative woman can have a healthy Kell positive baby together. In subsequent pregnancies, however, The antibodies the mother produced during the first pregnancy can cross the placenta and attack a cow-positive fetus, causing a late-term miscarriage, stillbirth, or rapid neonatal death. While an exact number is hard to determine, it is believed that Henry's sexual encounters with his various wives and mistresses resulted in at least 11 and possibly more than 13 pregnancies. Records indicate that only four of these yielded healthy babies. The future Mary I, born to Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, after six children were stillborn or died shortly after birth. Henry Fitzroy, the king's only child with his teenage mistress, Bessie Blount. The future Elizabeth I, the first child born to Anne Boleyn, who went on to suffer several miscarriages before her date with the chopping block. And the future Edward, King King Henry's son by his third wife, Jane Seymour, who died before the couple could try for a second. The survival of the three first-born children, Henry Fitzroy, Elizabeth, and Edward, is consistent with the Kell-positive reproductive pattern. As for Catherine of Aragon, the researchers note, 
quote, it is possible that some cases of Kell sensitization affect even the first pregnancy, end quote. And Mary ha may have survived because she inherited the recessive Kell gene from Henry, making her impervious to her mother's antibodies. After scanning higher branches of Henry's family tree for evidence of the Kell antigen and its accompanying reproductive tables, Whitley and Kramer believe that they have traced it back to Jaquetta of Luxembourg, the king's maternal great-grandmother. Quote, the pattern of reproductive failure among Jaquetta's male descendants, while the females were generally reproductively successful, suggests the genetic presence of the Kell phenotype within the family, end quote, the authors explain. The historian David Starkey has written of two Henrys, the old one and the other young. The young Henry was handsome, spry, and generous, a devoted ruler who loved sports, music, and Catherine of Aragon. The old Henry binged on rich foods, undermined his country's stability to marry his mistress, and launched a brutal campaign to eliminate foes both real and imagined. Beginning in middle age, the king also suffered leg pain that made walking nearly impossible. Whitley and Kramer argue that McLeod syndrome, a genetic disorder that only affects Kell-positive individuals, could account for this drastic change. The disease weakens muscles, causes dementia-like cognitive impairment, and typically sets in between the ages of 30 to 40. Other experts have attributed Henry VIII's apparent mental instability to syphilis and theorized theorized that osteomyelitis, a chronic bone infection, caused his mobility problems. For Whitley and Kramer, McLeod syndrome could explain many of the symptoms the king experienced later in life. So it's time to absolve Henry VIII of his bloodthirsty reputation and cut him some slack as a calipositive McLeod syndrome sufferer. If Whitley and Kramer have anything to do with it, we may finally get a definitive answer. They are in the process of acting, asking England's reigning monarch at the time, Queen Elizabeth, who has now passed on and now her son is the reigning monarch, for permission to exhume her distant relative and perform DNA tests on his hair and bones. Interestingly, while Henry VIII conceived and even has had born children by his first three wives and a mistress and even possibly more, his successive three wives, Catherine Howard, Anne of Cleves, and Catherine Parr, never had any pregnancies while married to him. But Catherine Parr would go on to marry and have a child following King Henry's death before passing away herself. With this discussion, let's examine the actual acknowledged pregnancies and births or deaths. The first of Henry VIII's wives, Catherine of Aragon, was married to the infamous Tudor monarch for almost 24 years. But while she bore the king a daughter, the future Mary I, the relationship was plagued by multiple miscarriages and stillbirths. Unable to produce a male heir, Catherine was eventually cast aside by Henry in favor of her lady-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. She had the following pregnancies. The court was in residence at Westminster when on January 31, 1510, Catherine, then about six or seven months pregnant, went into labor prematurely. Her infant, a daughter, was stillborn. 
Although not in uncommon in those days, it was considered in this country a great calamity, and Catherine suffered a strong sense of failure because she had desired to gladden the king and the people with a prince. Catherine was profoundly shaken by her loss and tormented by guilt. She did not have the heart to inform her father or suffer anyone else to tell him, and when some days later she was persuaded that he would like to hear from her, she begged him, quote, Pray, your highness, do not storm against me. It is not my fault. It is the will of God. The king, my lord, took it cheerfully, and I thank God that you have given me such a husband, end quote. Again, she repeated as if to reassure herself, it is the will of God. Henry, however, wasted no time in getting Catherine pregnant again, and on May 25, 1510, her confessor was able to inform Ferdinand, quote, it has pleased our Lord to be her physician, and by his infinite mercy, he has again per permitted her to be with child. She is already, by the grace of God, very large, end quote. Catherine could only have been seven or eight weeks pregnant at the most, assuming that she carried her child to term. The date of conception must have been between the, 14th, the 6th and the 14th of April. Confusion has arisen because in late May, there was a report in Spain that some days before she had been delivered of a stillborn daughter. That must refer to her loss in January because the time frame rules out delayed interval delivery of a twin. Soon after midnight on New Year's Day, 1511, Catherine was delivered of a prince to the great gladness of the realm. In honor of the occasion, bonfires were lit in London and free wine flowed in the conduits and in the churches, Tidum was sang. The infant was christened Henry with very great pomp and rejoicing. But after this great joy came sorrowful chance. Suddenly, the festivities were curtailed. The king and queen had received the terrible news that their little son had died. Henry, quote, like a wise prince, took his dolorous ch chance wondrous wisely and the more to comfort the queen who had made, made no great mourning outwardly. But the queen, like a natural woman, made much lamentation, end quote. Henry spent a lavish sum on the funeral of Prince Henry, who was buried in Westminster Abbey. On September 30th, Thomas Wolsey wrote, quote, it is thought that the queen is with child, end quote. Nothing more was heard of this, so it was either a false hope or Catherine had suffered a miscarriage. She was pregnant again when Henry went to war with France in June of 1513. When the Scots invaded England in his absence in September, Catherine, heavily pregnant, traveled to Buckingham, where she made a splendid oration to the forces camped outside the town, urging them to victory at Flodden that followed. But in October, while Henry was still away, Catherine was delivered of a premature son who died shortly after birth. One gains no impression that Henry was bitter about the loss of another son. He knew that Catherine had been what Catherine had been through in his absence. But by July 1514, she was pregnant once more. The Chronicler Hall states that, quote, in November, the queen was delivered of a prince who lived not long after, end quote. But in December, the Venetian ambassador in England reported that she had borne a stillborn male child of eight months to the very great grief of the whole court. 
Late in December, it was reported that that Catherine had brought forth an abortion due to worry about the excessive discord between the two kings, her husband and father. Because of her excessive grief, she is said to have ejected an immature fetus. Catherine was already out of favor because of that discord, and it was evident to others that Henry's love for her had cooled. The loss of this son, who would have restored her to her husband's good graces, was a doubtly bitter blow, and she observed that God must love her to confer upon her the privilege of so much sorrow. Tragedy and stress had taken their toll. Approaching 30, she had lost her youthful bloom and her figure, and in 1515 was described as rather ugly than otherwise. I mean, after so many pregnancies and so much loss, could you really blame her? Henry's displeasure abated and Catherine conceived again. On February 18, 1516, she gave birth to a healthy daughter, the future Mary I. The king was delighted with this right lusty princess. When the Venetian ambassadors congratulated him, he told them, quote, We are both young. If it was a daughter this time, by the grace of God, the sons will follow. Which he also said to Anne Boleyn later. They didn't. In August 1517, it was reported that the queen is supposed to be pregnant, but no more was heard of it. Her last child was conceived in February 1518 when she was 32 years old. Quote, I pray God heartily that it may be a prince to the surety and universal comfort of the realm, end quote, wrote the king's secretary. The pregnancy was kept secret, but in July, when Henry arrived at Woodstock, Catherine greeted him at the door of her chamber, proud to display for his welcome home her belly something great, declaring openly that the child had quickened in her womb, or in other words, kicked, that that was a sign that the pregnancy would progress during these times. Henry was so delighted that he gave a great banquet to celebrate and wrote to Wolsey that he was so loath to repair to London because about this time is partly of her dangerous times and by cause of that I would remove her as little as I may. He knew by now that a happy outcome was not an assured thing but a thing wherein I have great hope and likelihood. Catherine was then about five months pregnant. If this was a dangerous time for her, then there may have been at least one other pregnancy that had they had not made public because none of her children had been born at five months. It is possible that the pregnancy rumored in 1517 had ended in a miscarriage at five months and was fresh in Henry's mind. There may have been another pregnancy in the two-year gap between Prince Henry's birth in January 1511 and the conception of the son born in October 1513. On October 25, 1518, it was reported that within a month or rather more, the queen was expecting her delivery, which was looked forward to with great anxiety by the whole realm. Tragically, such hopes were to come nothing yet again, for on the night of November 9th to the 10th, the queen was delivered of a daughter to the vexation of everybody. Never had the kingdom so anxiously desired anything as it did a prince. The baby was weak and died before she could be christened. 
By the spring of 1525, it was well known that, nearing 40 years old, Catherine was long past the usual age of childbearing. She had borne her losses with great resignation, yet the burden of failure was great. In the Patriarchal Society of Tudor, England, blame for stillbirths and neonatal deaths were always apportioned to the woman, and some were of the opinion that Henry had made a grave mistake in marrying a wife older than himself. Quote, my good brother of England has no son because although young and handsome, he keeps an old and deformed wife, and quote, the king of France cruelly observed. To his credit, Henry never openly reproached Catherine for his lack of a male heir, although he was now desperate for a son and probably beginning to wonder why God should deny him his one crucial gift. Now on to his second wife, Anne Boleyn. Her pregnancies are heavily disputed. Some say she had had only three, while others say there were four pregnancies in three years. Whatever the case, the generalized thought is that there was a healthy baby girl who lived and at least two sons, one being a stillbirth late into pregnancy at almost term and the other at approximately three to four months of gestation. On April 12, 1533, Anne Boleyn appeared before Henry VIII's court for the first time as queen. She was four months pregnant after a calculated gamble she and Henry took the previous autumn to secretly marry and consummate their relationship. For Henry, this meant a frantic winter in early spring, finalizing his divorce from Catherine of Aragon and solidifying the legality of his second marriage. For Anne, the quick conception was nothing short of a complete victory. Henry moved heaven and earth to make Anne his wife. Her half of the deal was to deliver the son and heir he so desperately wanted. Her introduction was followed by a coronation on June 1st, at which it was reported that the crowds of London refused to cheer or remove their hats when Anne passed. Notable absences such as Henry's younger sister, Mary Tudor, and that of Anne's aunt, the Duchess of Norfolk, were seen as pointed insults to the new queen. In reality, Mary was fatally ill and the Duchess of Norfolk was estranged from her husband, but even so, it was also widely known that both women detested Anne and supported her predecessor. So, were the crowds disrespectful? The truth likely lies somewhere in the middle, but at the end of the day, a coronation was a great way to meet on free drinks and celebrate, and that likely drew enough people who didn't really care which woman sat beside Henry. And among them were certainly those who genuinely wished Anne ill and felt her presence sinful, offensive, and inappropriate. We don't know how much Anne cared. There was no 16th century equivalent of Sean Spicer at her disposal. Her win was her pregnancy, and she may very well have taken the approach that people would come around once her son was born. And a son she was certain she was having, as was Henry. In the last days of August, Anne entered her confinement, sealed off from men and the rest of the court in the apartments that would become her birthing chamber. Usually, this took place during the final month of a pregnancy. However, just 10 days later, Anne went into labor, indicating the baby may have been premature. Anne delivered a daughter at 3 in the afternoon on Sunday, September 7, 1533. 
We don't know exactly how Henry or Anne responded to this news privately, except that we can say with confidence both were disappointed. Whether this was the beginning of the end of a short marriage is a matter of debate among Henry's and Anne's biographers, but the truth of the matter is we have no real way of knowing. Henry put on a brave face, clinging to the knowledge that Anne had easily conceived and produced a healthy child. All things told, there was no reason to think that she couldn't repeat the performance with the son. My personal belief is that it was the first real crack in their relationship. I believe that Henry genuinely did love Anne. I also believe that that love was initially based in respect and admiration. That said, their relationship was about potential. Anne's ability to deliver him from a marriage of which he had grown tired. Anne's ability to be young fertile and interesting. Anne's ability to validate Henry's fragile sense of masculinity via, via male heirs. When Anne failed to follow through, yes, I think it was the first foundational crack in their relationship. It wasn't the fatal blow, and had a son been born the next year, the point would have been moot, but she didn't. And so that brings us to Anne's subsequent pregnancies. The new princess was christened Elizabeth after Henry's mother, Elizabeth of York, and Anne's mother, Elizabeth Howard. She was duly set up in her own household that kept her apart from her parents most of the time, as was custom. Henry and Anne together, and sometimes Anne by herself, made visits to their daughter with regularity. On occasion, Elizabeth would also join the royal court where she could be seen in public. Around December 1533 or January 1534, Anne was pregnant again. Her condition was visible that spring and it was reported by Eustace Chapoy, the Spanish ambas ambassador, that Henry was confident this child would be a son he was waiting for. An ornate silver cradle was commissioned and expensive baby clothes and linens ordered. All was for naught. At some point in late summer, Anne miscarried. For Henry, this was too reminiscent of the years he spent with Catherine as she had miscarried or went through stillbirths every few years. Even if the birth of Elizabeth hadn't damaged the relationship, the 1534 miscarriage certainly did, and we are given our first real reports of a rift between Henry and Anne. The marriage wasn't over, and a linear path can't be drawn from any one event to their eventual divorce and Anne's execution less than two years later. Henry and Anne had a fiery relationship even before their marriage, and while reports of friction and infidelity were pounced upon by Anne's enemies, it's too clear-cut to say definitively that X equals Y when attempting to wrap your head around how it came to be that Henry sent Anne to her death. But each failed attempt at a son was the slow drip of water torture, particularly for a man like Henry Tudor. By October 1535, Anne was pregnant again after a whirlwind summer progress and bout of hunting with Henry. Towards the end of the season spent outside London, Henry and Anne visited Wolf Hall, the family seat of the Seymours, where he likely encountered a young woman who would not only serve Anne as lady-in-waiting, but had served Catherine as well. Her name was Jane Seymour. 
Whether the visit inspired an actual romance between Henry and Jane is anyone's guess. For that matter, we don't have a complete certainty she was at home at the time. But whatever the logistics of it all were, by the early winter of 1536, Henry was actively pursuing Jane. We know, of course, that Jane became Henry's third wife, but the early stages of their relationship shouldn't be given any weighted significance for the simple reason that Anne was actually pregnant at the time. Had she delivered a son or even a healthy child, her tenure would have likely continued. Instead, any interest Henry had in Jane was likely that of a bored husband waiting out his wife's pregnancy. Even Jane's play at Anne's own game, refusing to become Henry's mistress, was likely nothing more than a blip on the king's radar at the time. At the dawn of 1536, Anne had every reason to celebrate. She was in her second trimester, and on January 7th, her longtime rival, Catherine of Aragon, finally died. For a superstitious court, it was fortuitous that the child Anne carried would be born free and clear of Catherine's shadow. Even those who didn't believe Anne was Henry's true wife couldn't argue he was still technically married to Catherine. But euphoria quickly gave way to panic when on January 24th, 1536, Henry fell from his horse on the tilt yard near Greenwich, knocking him unconscious for two hours. For two hours then, his court prepared for his death, which would have been nothing short of anarchy. While Anne was Henry's legal wife, England would not have had to wait out the rest of her pregnancy to learn whether or not her child was a son, leaving the country without an actual monarch for the first time in history. If the child was a girl, assuming it lived, the choice would have come down to Anne's two-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, or Catherine's 20-year-old daughter, Mary. But the choice would not have been so simple as adult or child because Mary was a Catholic and Elizabeth was of the Reformed faith. It would have be become an all-out war of religion, but the Reformation was in its infancy and Elizabeth's claim would have been dragged down by the unpopularity of her mother. In other words, while Mary might have still loved her father, he had, had he died in 1536, she and her rule would have had the best chance of success and England would have likely reverted back to Catholicism for at least another generation. But Henry woke up, though he was permanently damaged by the injuries, a particular wound on his leg would plague him for the rest of his life and meant that he spent the next 11 years of his life in near constant pain. As for Anne, she went through such a trauma that she miscarried her child five days later. According to Shapui reports, the child appeared to be male and of about three and a half months along. Very possibly, had Henry not jousted that day, he and Anne would have finally had their son. That is not quite how Henry saw it, though. When he finally visited his wife after the miscarriage, he said, quote, I see that God will not give me male children. When you are up, I will speak with you. End quote. Anne, for her part, retorted, that she had miscarried because of the shock over his fall and the fact that he insisted on paying attention to other women, namely Jane Seymour. But Henry was no longer in a mood for lovers' quarrels and his accident underlined his own sense of mortality. If Anne would not give him sons, then Anne was what needed to be removed. 
Less than four months later, he did just that. As for Elizabeth, with her Tudor red hair and long Boleyn face, she was immediately declared a bastard in the wake of her mother's execution. In October 1537, she played a ceremonial role in the christening of her younger half-brother, Edward, and was absorbed within his household. Later on in her father's reign, she would have been added back into the succession after Edward and Mary, and it would be through the mediation of her father's fifth and sixth wives, Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr, that she was brought back into his good graces. But Elizabeth was extraordinary from a young age, perhaps unsurprisingly given the nature of her parents. Unbelievably well-educated and remarkably smart, she was a savant of language, music, and political reality. She ascended the throne against all odds at the age of 25, but unlike her mother, she never gambled on a marriage or motherhood. The Tudor line ended with her, and when she died, the throne passed to her Stuart cousin, King James of Scotland. Then came Jane Seymour, Queen of England and the third wife of King Henry VIII. She married 11 days after his second wife, Anne Boleyn, was executed by beheading on Tower Green near the Tower of London. Anne was executed on May 19, 1536, and Henry VIII and Jane Seymour were married on May 30, 1536. It has been speculated over the centuries that Jane became pregnant in the autumn of 1536 and had a miscarriage. However, this is not fact and cannot be proven. But given Henry's track record, I'm sure it would have been kept secret given the fact that his previous queens suffered miscarriages and he wouldn't want anyone to know that his new queen had lost a child so shortly after another had been executed on trumped up charges. In January 1537, she conceived. During her pregnancy, she developed a craving for quail, which Henry ordered from, for her from Calais and Flanders. During the summer, she took no public engagements and led a relatively quiet life, attended by royal physicians and the best midwives in the kingdom. She then went into confinement in September 1537 and gave birth to the coveted male heir, the future King Edward, at 2 o'clock in the morning on October 12, 1537 at Hampton Court Palace. Edward was christened on October 15, 1537 without his mother in attendance, as was custom. He was the only legitimate son of Henry VIII to survive infancy. Both of his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, were present and carried Edward's train during the ceremony. Jane's labor had been difficult, lasting two days and three nights, probably because the baby was not well positioned. After the christening, it became clear that she was seriously ill. She died on October 24, 1537 at Hampton Court Palace. Within a few weeks, there were conflicting accounts of the cause of her death. According to King Edward's biographer, Jennifer Loach, her death may have been due to an infection from a retained placenta. According to Allison Ware, she may have succumbed to puerperal fever or otherwise known as childbed fever following a bacterial infection contracted during the birth. Weir has also speculated after medical consultation that the cause of her death was a pulmonary embolism. 
Jane was buried on November 12, 1537 in St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle after the funeral in which her stepdaughter Mary acted as chief mourner. A procession of 29 mourners followed Mary, one for every year of Jane's life. She was the only one of Henry's wives to receive a queen's funeral. The next woman I'm going to discuss is the only mistress of the king that provided an illegitimate son. Henry VIII first became aware of Bessie Blount at a mosque held in 1514. Mosques, including elaborate disguises, which fooled, of course, absolutely no one, was a passion of the king. As such, they quickly became the passion of the whole court. Everyone joined in, especially the king's young male friends. Bessie Blount was a superb dancer and had a pretty singing voice. Above all, Bessie was her with her high spirits and energies, which matched the king's own, was fun. According to Philippa Jones, the author of The Other Tutors, Henry VIII's Mistresses and Bastards, released in 2010, said that he fell in love with her straight away. Quote, Henry's big, first big extramarital romance came in 1514, when he fell in love with Elizabeth Bessie Blount. She was his ideal woman, young, beautiful, intelligent, acquiescent, well-raised, musical, an enthusiastic writer, and a graceful dancer. While Catherine remained his wife and the future mother of his heir, Henry was no longer deeply in love with her. In a very short time, Bessie Blount came to mean everything to him. The first evidence of the relationship came when, in July 1514, Bessie's father was giving 146 pounds by Henry. Two months later, the affair was referred to in a letter from Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk, to Henry. At this time, it was also mentioned by Fray Diego Fernandez, a close associate of Catherine of Aragon. However, Henry was good at keeping his infidelity secret, and very few people knew about his affair with the young Bessie Blount. Kelly Hart has speculated that the relationship began when Henry was 23 and she was about 13. Whoa. That was common in that age, though. In an age where poor diet delayed the onset of puberty, this was very young, but not considered too young for a relationship with a man. There was concern that having sex at an early age could cause illness or even death, but when life expectancy was so low anyway, many were prepared to take risks. Mary, Henry VIII's first child, was not considered the male heir. She was still a valuable asset in the dynastic marriage and diplomatic power game. Mary's godfather, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, and Henry used the two-year-old to seal the new alliance with France embodied in the Treaty of London of 1518. Mary was betrothed to the Dauphin of France at the mask held to celebrate the agreement. Bessie Blount sung a song she had written with music by William Cornish, master of the King's Chapel. Bessie gave birth to Henry Fitzroy in about June 1519. As David Starkey has pointed out, quote, Henry recognized the boy and created him Duke of Richmond, but the birth marked the beginning of the end of the love affair. Babies, Henry seems to have felt, were for wives and not for mistresses, who should inhibit a more urethral realm of chival chivalric fantasy, end quote. 
Three months later, Bessie married Gilbert Talboys, heir of George Lord Talboys of Keem, and his wife Elizabeth. Since Gilbert had become a ward of the crown after his father was declared a lunatic in 1517, the match was clearly envisioned by the king as a reward to his former mistress. Henry granted Bessie property worth of about 200 pounds a year for the rest of her life. Philippa Jones has argued that this affair and its outcome taught Henry VIII a valuable lesson. From then on, his mistresses had husbands that could hide any child born to such a relationship. For example, his next mistress, Mary Boleyn, was encouraged to marry William Carey, a gentleman of the privy chamber. Henry attended their wedding and over the next few years gave Carey several royal grants of land and money. David Lodes has pointed out whether this is a marriage of convenience arranged by the king to conceal an existing affair or whether she only became his mistress after her marriage is not clear. However, this made it easy for the king of England to not um, acknowledge the children born of the affair because then they would just be claimed by the husband. So what do you think? Did Henry VIII have a genetic blood disorder that caused so many deaths of his children and he was actually the cause, not his wives? Or is it just a testament to the era and time period they were living in where babies died due to poor conditions? Maybe we will never know, but I believe that it is likely that the Kell antigen caused the losses of pregnancies and um, stillbirths and children born but then died shortly after i think it's very possible it just makes sense with most of these pregnancies and births um i mean it's known that without medical intervention like shots um that the first baby will be healthy most of the time and then the next baby is your your body will essentially attack it um, and you'll lose that pregnancy. Um, but back in Tudor times, they did not know about the Kell antigen. They didn't know about these things. And so there was no possible way to, to stop the pregnancy from terminating itself. Um, you know, and at this time, they just blamed women. If they lost babies, it was their fault. Um, but it medically, it really wasn't their fault. Um, so yes, I do think that this is the likely cause because he um, did have mis he had mistresses that had miscarriages as well. He had several miscarriages. I would not or miss <laughs> excuse me mistresses. Um, I would not say he was licentious um, compared to the king of France who was very very had many mistresses um henry the eighth uh factually we only know of about a handful of mistresses so um you know it's hard to gauge how many women actually conceived children during their affairs because many of these women were you know married to other men and those men claimed their children so um i think it is very likely that uh, Mary Boleyn's first two children were fathered by Henry VIII, but those children were acknowledged by William Carey, her husband at the time. So there is no way to know if those children were, were actually his. Um, and if we knew if those children were his, um, then 
you know, that would cause a whole nother thing with these genetic blood disorders. Like, um, you know, maybe she had a recessive gene, uh, if that is the case, or it would beg the question why all his other partners had problems with, um, consecutive pregnancies after the first, but Mary Boleyn's were fine. Um, you know, maybe we'll never know, but these, these are my thoughts on the subject and that's the episode for today. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. And as always, leave comments or send an email to history true crime uncovered at gmail.com with suggestions for future episodes until then catch you next time